I'm a white woman. Mm-hmm. White women have been very problematic. Mm. Historically, and um, especially in the last few years, there have been story after story of the ways that people who look like me um, show up in problematic ways. And so recognizing, recognizing that, reckoning with my own privilege in the midst of that. I'm Jeremy Dixon, and you're listening to The Misfit Manifesto. What's up, party people, and welcome back to Misfit Manifesto. So on today's episode, we sit down with Cassie Trentaz, full professor of theology, ethics, and church history at Warner Pacific University, a low-key rascal committed to inching, stumbling, and leaping toward glimpses of shalom in the world today, following the lead of those often excluded. Cassie and I will discuss the two-loops theory of change, collapsing of culture, and drawing on history to prepare us for tomorrow. Cassie Trentaz, I can't tell you how happy I am to have you on the show. Oh my goodness, Jeremy, it's so good to be here. I wish I was with you in studio. Yeah, It's always a pleasure um, to talk with you. Means the world to me. I mean, obviously, you know, one of the things that I've I've been super excited about is that all of my guests are people who I actually talk to regularly, you know? And I don't know if that's always gonna be the case, but right now in this first season, I've been able to draw upon the fact that, you know, the rapport or the, in, the energy we have, the chemistry we have, like in this space is because we have a real relationship and so much of, I think, the work that I do and the ways in which I'm showing up in the world really is informed by my relationships. And I, I can't, and maybe you know this, but I can't tell you how much you are a big part of kind mm-hmm. of the way in which I'm showing up in the world. So thanks so much. Thank you, Jeremy. And I'm I'm glad that you named those things because that's a lot of the heartbeat of some of the questions that I think that you have for me and some of the topics that we're yeah. going to be talking about. Absolutely. So here's what's funny is that as much as we spend time together in, in Oregon, in Indiana, wherever we've been in L.A., I don't actually know much about your upbringing. So I, I think just for, for context, um, and I'm going to get into some heavy stuff in a minute, but for context, it might be cool to kind of just hear yeah. about like what's the origin story? Like you're a superhero, but we want to know what the origin story <laughs> is. Like where do you come from? City, state, mom, dad, like what's the, who is Cassie? How do you arrive at this moment yeah yeah um and i wouldn't say superhero we're not a mis- <laughs> misfits podcast right so right maybe absolutely spin is the anti-hero at times <laughs> yep um my roots you're asking about my roots yeah thank you for that um i grew up in kansas in a little town in kansas a little farm community mm-hmm. um with a family of farmers and teachers and storytellers and pranksters um, my it. parents were both public school teachers. Oh, cool. And my dad also um, was in the National Guard. So grew up with a little bit of a military family. Um, and folks who have been in Kansas for a long time. So people who know how to be connected to the land. Um, people who know how fragile life is. Mm. I think that was a lot of my own shaping is just recognizing what it's what it's like to be in uh, wide open spaces and also dependent on like the wildness of the weather. Hmm. Um, so there's a bit of a who can you count on? You can count on your people, but you can't always count on um, or 
you got to be scrappy. You got to be problem mm-hmm. solving. You got to mm-hmm. be um, ready to hold some things loosely mm-hmm. and be grateful what, for what comes and be ready to adapt um, when when those things don't come. So that was a little bit of my upbringing. Um, moved from there to college in Indiana. Okay. Um, so the experience of a more like blue collar factory um, town that experienced a lot of significant economic pressure um, about the time that I was arriving. Um, and that also was the seat of, of my faith tradition. Um, and then to the south side of Chicago, where we moved. And I did my graduate studies there and worked as a, a pastoral caregiver for mm. um, an HIV and AIDS uh, pastoral caregiving organization. Um, and they're just experienced the beauty and the power and the complication um, of that urban environment before moving out to Portland's Outer East Side here in Oregon um, 13 years ago and wow. became a parent like almost immediately after that. So that changed a little bit of my dynamics in the world as well. That's incredible. It's so funny when you, and this is completely aside, I, when you were talking about just kind of the wide open space of your upbringing yep. and um, the um, the nature of being in spaces where you're kind of reliant on sometimes the unpredictable elements of right. the world and how it evolves. So I'm watching the show. First of all, I'm a Yellowstone fan, so I watched Yellowstone, <laughs> and, and then I started watching, I think it's 1883, and then I started watching, 19, or 1881, now I'm watching 1923, or whatever it's called, all these spinoffs, right? And so yeah. there's this pretty crazy scene that I just watched recently, and in the scene, the short version is, they're, you know, the Catholic Church, the nuns, are trying to convert these Native Americans, uh, mm. young women, right? And part of what happens is, and I'm, I'm going to get the language wrong, but ultimately, as they're trying to teach them farming, they say something to the effect of, you know, we're going to kind of remove you from having to follow the migration of the wild and the, you know, the unpredictable nature and teach you how to create this space where it's more predictable. And I thought to myself, man, how it is a, it is to me, it is a, very conscious way of looking at sometimes how we move away from the fact that the unpredictable nature is actually something that we need. And we're so busy trying to make things predictable and trying to organize them. And actually it's kind of like antithetical to the way in which we ought to arrive in the world, like depending on God and not knowing all the answers and having to go with the flow. We like, we want everything to be in boxes and shapes. And that's not really how we ought to show up. Not always. Yeah, and that's antithetical, I think, to the way that the world often works. Yeah. So the more that we try to create that security or that predictability, um, I mean, there's gains in sure, that for sure. sure. Absolutely. And there's losses. And yep. we don't always know or we can't always predict. Yeah. Um, even in the midst of that, like what what might be lost, what disconnections are created. Yeah. Um, and then what, you know, the next generation will have to adjust or a hundred years from now, yeah. the ways that that might impact um, how our, our descendants kind of show up in the world. Makes so much sense. All right. So we kind of heard this in your intro, but you are, you know, gainfully employed as an incredible professor at Warner Pacific University. Mm-hmm. You are an ordained 
a member of the clergy and the Church of God movement. And you also, in the past few years, cut your locks because of the tear gas, you know, from your protesting. And so there's this unique intersection of higher education, you know, your, you know, your path in ordained ministry. And also, like, you're in the streets, tear, you know, dodging tear gas canisters, you know, mask, you know, mobilizing, checking your GPS on your phone to make sure you're not being tracked. Um, talk a little bit about how those... <laughs> Three kind of work together. You're you're trying to make my life make sense, huh? I, I, listen, I'm doing the best I can. Make my life <laughs> make sense coming out with the heavy hitters. Yeah, how do these components of my identity and just how I show up in the world um, work together? Um, which to me feels really integrated. Yeah, like they feel incredibly woven um, together and integrated. Um, but I think uh, I'll start with the faith tradition piece. Sure. Is that's the piece that really kind of anchors um, and and the rest and weave intersections from there. Yeah. You mentioned I'm an ordained minister uh, in the Church of God, which is a family branch of kind of the wider religious family of Christianity. I yeah. work in interfaith circles, so sometimes denominations make less sense than that bigger piece Um which is a broader religion that centers in the life and teachings of Jesus. Yeah. Right? Jesus, the lower economic, colonized, Middle Eastern, Jewish man, as told in biblical narrative and throughout Christian history. So when I look to Jesus, everything centers on this concrete, practical love yeah. in and with actual people, right? So if you skinny the thing down, we often use it. We use the language of the great commandments um, to love God, self, neighbor, stranger, enemy, the world, um, and everything else hinges on that. Yeah. Right. So the Church of God piece is a particular people who focus on how do we live that love ethic um, through language we use of, of holiness and unity. Mm -hmm. And it's a particular kind of holiness. It's a Wesleyan holiness which is a social holiness. Mm. So that's not a holiness that understands itself primarily as like separation mm -hmm. from that, which is we would call not holy, um, but understand itself as we actually become more holy when we become ever increasing full of love. Yeah. That love of God's self, neighbor, stranger, enemy in the world. Yeah. And so full that there's no room for anything that doesn't look like love. Yeah. Right. But that social holiness piece is also really anchored in like understanding what life is like for the other. Understanding what life is like for real people. And especially when we think about Wesleyan holiness, there's a there's a structural critique. There's a systemic critique. There's a paying attention to power. Mm -hmm. There's a paying attention to who are the folks who aren't benefiting from any given system. And saying, what is it? What is the love of God, and what? Where, where do we think Jesus might be? Yeah. In the midst of these kinds of systems, so that really is kind of an anchor for me. It's a love ethic that isn't, um, like a fuzzy, feel-good, lovey-dovey. <laughs> right. But there's a bite to it. There's some teeth to it. Sometimes mm -hmm. there's an there's an edge to it, uh, and that's also the heart of my reality as both an educator. Um, and then a community organizer. So yeah. you're asking about kind of those three intersections. Yeah, absolutely. My, my life and how that shows up. And so um, 
understanding like love ethic that way pushes me to be and do better. Um, but it also, uh, in some ways is fuel to, to be in those spaces, to be pushing us to be and do better. Um, and be hearing from folks in those moments where like our flashpoints or pressure K kind of moments where, yeah. where pressures and tensions are really, really live, um, to, to listen deeply to that and say, Oh, what does it look like to show up here? Um, what is love requiring here, asking for here? Um, and so I can't be a teacher without being connected to the realities of the lives of my students. Yeah. And I can't be a community organizer, of course, without listening deeply and following the lead of uh, what is going on in particular in my particular local context. And so this is what leads me to the streets, right? You're mm -hmm. asking about particularly the racial justice uprisings of 2020. Yeah. Um, but as the fruit of like years of being an organizer and um, working in organizing communities and um, activist work as kind of the fruit of, of both faith and being a responsible educator. Um, and many of my students are students of color hmm. and they were, they're impacted, they're feeling the impact, they're in the streets and I can't be, can't be a clergy uh, with any sense of integrity. I, I didn't feel like I could be an educator with a deep sense of integrity if I also wasn't there to at least be um, in my body, present, support, witness, observer to truth. Yeah. Um, in some ways, like, there to help when folks are getting kettled. Um, where are the pathways? Where are the exits? And, and thinking about the role of just telling the story as it's, really being experienced by folks and not just as other angles and narratives are telling. Um, so I couldn't sit it out yeah. and wouldn't have chosen to sit it out. Um, but it also meant that I had to continue to recognize, reckon with my own privilege. Hmm. I'm a white woman. Mm -hmm. White women have been very problematic hmm. historically. And um, especially in the last few years, there have been story after story of the ways that people who look like me um, show up in problematic ways. And so recognizing recognizing that, reckoning with my own privilege in the midst of that. And so to my hair. Yeah. I had dreadlocks for 13 years. Um, my lock journey started when I was living in Chicago. Um, and, and in the community there in many ways was woven into those locks, mm. gifted me the locks. The responsibility of that, recognizing both privilege and connection and feeling a sense of bearing one another's burdens. Um, but I'm not living in Chicago anymore. Mm -hmm. And I'm away from that community. Um, and being uh, in Portland, a white woman with dreadlocks was becoming more potentially problematic than helpful hmm. in the justice work and in supporting the work. Um, so that those seeds were already there the sure. reason to begin to start combing those locks out. Um, and then the experience of, uh, the pepper balls and the tear gas, yeah. um, when it was my turn in the streets, uh, just confirmed the decision to comb those out. So yeah. I combed them out on that summer of 2020. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it goes without saying that 
Portland was in some ways the epicenter mm-hmm. of protests. I mean, Portland, y'all turned up in a major way um, following the George Floyd incident, the response yeah. to that. Um, what would you attribute that to? Why did why did why did that experience have mm-hmm. such impact in in the Portland area? There are a lot of dynamics that are unique in Portland. Hmm. Um, and though Portland was not unique in the sense that uh, regular protests broke out, sure. It became unique in how many consecutive days. Yeah, yeah, how long it went. So I think part of that was due to um, the longer history of mutual aid organizations that has been a part of Portland cultural history and Mm -hmm. Portland activist history. Um, And Portland out here is known to be kind of on the left and stand for some things that were also woven into the dynamics around um, not just racial justice, but also how that intersects with policing. Yeah. It made it easier, I think, for folks to circle up, support each other, um, be able to spread out and sustain presence every night for all the nights. And a lot of different groups came together in that kind of way. Um, so that it wasn't always the same people. Got it. And it wasn't always the same people having to sustain or supply the energy or care for each other um, in the same kinds of way every night. So there was a little bit of tagging back and forth. But there are a lot of folks who are way more in the center of it than I. Sure, sure. um, And would would give a much fuller response. But Mm -hmm. I think the, the mutual aid community... Um, the the kind of activist feel, um, yeah. the grassroots feel that's already a part of kind of Portland culture. And race dynamics have been a significant part of the history of Portland as a city. Hmm. Um, so there are communities feeling it um, and working in complicated ways to address that. Yeah. Um, that, that continue to unfold. I think it's interesting, and and we'll probably we will touch this a bit more in a moment. In a moment, but just to, you know, the thread of uh, you, you call yourself a community organizer, which I think is absolutely appropriate. Um, but what I hear you saying is, you know, part of the capacity that you all had to sustain the level of protest over the period of time that you did was that there was this level in which you the collaboration was highly organized on some level, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, there was this tagging, this interplay, there's several different groups able to interface with each other. And that's a huge part, you know, this is called Misfits Manifesto. Sometimes the misfit motif like is falsely interpreted as this like aggressive individualism, but I mm-hmm. highly disagree with that. I think, you know, misfits, know how to link up with other misfits and make incredible things happen. We're not anarchists, you know what I'm saying? We just don't choose to go along with the flow and we see opportunity. And so I think for for you all there, you know, no matter what anyone thinks about the protest, good, bad, or indifferent, you have to respect you all's capacity to organize well to sustain that type of protest for that prolonged period of time. Yeah, and I would say, you know, I participated with a group of interfaith clergy who uh, we did not see our job in any way as the organizers of any of this. Mm-hmm. But our job is to support and to show up. Yeah. 
and to bring clergy presence yeah. and to follow the lead, particularly yeah. of our students, because so many of those who are really the heartbeat of this were, were young folks. Yeah. So what does it look like to just be present with the young folks marching, um, come what may. Yeah. They, they can look over to us. We've got a little, we've got markers that indicate we are clergy. We've got mm-hmm. our collars or we've got our vests, mm-hmm. um, sometimes vestments. Mm-hmm. And so that there's like a presence of like a sacred presence on the street in the midst of this. Mm-hmm. And also ability to just, there's someone here also who's bearing witness. Mm-hmm. So that there's a story to be told of the truth of the realities in the midst of this and the folds of this and the yeah. smoke um, and the pepper of this and not yeah. just removed. And that felt really crucial. Yeah. So we're not the organizers. Yeah. We're here to support. Absolutely. Um, and bear witness in, in a, in a, in a moment that was really textured. Yeah. Um, and felt really sacred in that it was so powerful. Yeah. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. I think about the apartheid movement. Like, I think Mm -hmm. most recognize that it was young people at the forefront. Like, you know, you you look at you, you travel there to South Africa and you experience the museums and all the recollections of those experiences. Young kids were dying on those streets, you know, really at the forefront of that movement. And my sense is that when you look at this, you know, and I, this I'm using so, so terribly, but like, I don't even know about anything about this band, but Rage Against the Machine, I'll just use that, mm-hmm. right? When you see this rage against mm-hmm. oppression, this rage against, you know, colonization, whatever, they're young minds, you know, vibrant, yeah. optimistic minds who are like championing the cause and it's so great to have leadership, whether that's clergy or other, or other types of leadership that help to undergird give texture, give context, you know, you know, add, you know, support, you know, safety mm-hmm. as these folk kind of charge out and attempt to see the world reflect what, what we see as our highest ideals. Yeah. 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 And I think what was important, and again, my, my role was very minimal. Sure. Right? Yeah. We're yeah. there to show up. Yeah. Um, but to also be a presence that isn't saying, no, don't do it that way. Right. Or, but this is what worked for us. Yeah. Or can't we all just this, right? There was a real <laughs> intentional yes. decision in the Portland protests and uprisings mm-hmm. that multiple methods have to happen. Yeah. Yep. And we're not going to regulate each other. Yes. That's huge. We're going to be present and we'll be present through what unfolds and we'll have some common mind and common goals, but not because we sat around the table and said, no, that goal is better than this goal, but, but allow those things to emerge out of the experiences of the people and the people with the most at stake. Right. So that's the other thing, as you're talking about young folks who hopefully who we want to have a longer future. Yeah. So there's more at stake in the world that we're creating um, in the world that they're kind of like pressing through and trying to help be born in a different way. Yeah. Um, so it feels like, it feels like um, just like an honor and a joy. Yeah. Um, though very painful. Yeah. At times. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, as an educator, as a parent, as a person of faith, as a, a, a white skinned person in the United States. Yeah. Um, to kind of sort out what, what's responsibility, what's faithfulness look like here. Um, and it's still be made. Mm-hmm. So, so I, well, I meet you, Cassie, 
um, you know, at the time you had locks, nose mm-hmm. ring. I mean, you just you have this really eclectic kind of this whole expression. I later find out that you were in a band. You give me one of your yeah. CDs, and in fact, I feel like my last <laughs> my last car is probably the last car that allowed for a disc to be put in. So I think your disc might I turned it in. It might still be in the car actually. <laughs> so I, I need another one. But I, ha- I had it on I had it on, in my car on repeat. You know, you know, you're an incredible musician. And I mentioned earlier, you know, you're an active. You're so many. You know, so many things are happening. The question I have for you is. Do you consider yourself to be a misfit? <laughs> and if so, <laughs> how would you define that? And is that intentional? Yeah, those are good questions. <laughs> I'm I'm in a cover band now again. I'm no way. Again. So yeah, that's new information. Wait, oh um, wait, time out, time out. That's new information. Is that an exclusive? That's new. Okay, uh, <laughs> producers, come on. We get exclusive. We get an exclusive. <laughs> you heard it here first. Cassie Trans cover band. All right, cover back band. on you. Cover band. We'll call it an exclusive. Then we'll take it. Um, do I consider myself a misfit? Yes. Time <laughs> yes, out. One more time. Me. Ladies and gentlemen, yeah. Cassie Trentas, the misfit. Let's go. Yes, probably. Uh, probably uh, almost always, almost since birth. Hmm. Um, so it's a little harder to answer the question about is it intentional? Gotcha. It's yes and no. Okay. I think in some ways, just how I dropped into the planet and the community that I dropped into, um, man, I never quite checked off all the boxes or fit into the culturally like set before me categories. Um, and then, you know, as I chose my path or as I, like my calling kind of unfolded, there was also misfittiness in like too, I was too young in some spaces or um, female bodied in other contexts where that wasn't um, embraced or was contested. Um, but I also have, I, I, that never really, like, I don't seek belonging hmm. in that way. Um, hmm. Maybe that's because of that in mm-hmm. some ways. It, it hasn't felt like a deterrent at all. Sure. And as yeah. I've kind of grown into my various misfit identities, um, I've begun to see it as a gift. There's yeah. an edge to it. Yeah. There's a power to it. And um, I've, I've intentionally chosen at times to maintain that. Mm-hmm. How it shows up for me sometimes is... Um, I straddle a lot of communities. Mm. So I'm, I've got my upbringing in rural and I've got experience in urban. So the, the recognition of the urban rural kind of split that is real yeah. in our country. Um, some of the communities that shape me are more conservative and some of the communities that I run with are more liberal. And so some of those, like straddling those kinds of dynamics, like, I'm an educator, but I'm not a classic educator. Yeah, I'm yeah. a scholar, activist, yeah. um, educator, right? So living kind of in the straddling spaces of different communities, I found has been a gift edge um, in that it brings different skills and different lenses, different questions together that haven't always been put together. Yeah. Um, 
I'm never, I've never been quite enough of this mm. or I'm too much this. Yes. Like that's sometimes yeah. how it shows up. Yeah. I'm not enough this. Yeah. Why can't you be like, yeah. you know, blank? Yeah. Or you're too much this. Yeah. Like, why can't you tone down that? Right. Yeah. So that's just the dynamic um, that I've been aware of like my whole life. And I see it more as um, these days, I see it more as an opportunity especially in the kind of moment that we live in um, and have begun to try to see, see, I'm trying this out. I'm trying this out. Another almost exclusive, right? I've <laughs> begun to try to see being in trouble as a creation event. Um, so when I get in trouble, which is fairly regular for whatever reason, <laughs> whatever, whatever situation, right? like how is, being in trouble actually a creation event. What is it that's being troubled? What is it that is like cracking open? What yeah. possibilities does that kind of quaking moment um, create? And I think, my goodness, I think misfits are are the ones that kind of create a trouble, stay with the trouble, mm-hmm. and in that, like a uh, new new possibilities are birthed that maybe we couldn't think about before that or um, our imaginations hadn't gotten there yet so we've got the troubling and now our imaginations can see it can catch up and maybe it's someone else who can run ahead with it or whatever Um, but yes I feel like a misfit (laughs) I love that you're doing misfit work yes be a little less alone in some of those spaces in the world and some of my favorite people in this world I think are yeah are solidly in the misfit category um, and, and grateful that for that good company. Absolutely. So we, when we were talking earlier, I was saying to you uh, of one of the, so I want to say I was, I was with you all first. I was in Oregon for a meeting and then we, we were able to get some time together. We were talking. I think I was flying to Boston after that and had this late night dinner uh, with some folk at this little pub next to Harvard and these two conversations, honestly, were deeply, um, deeply charging for kind of what I'm like leaning into. And the portion that I had with you, we're talking and I'm kind of just, you know, me, we're just all my little philosophies and we're talking about the world and this whole thing. And you hit me with this concept, this theory of change called yeah. the two loops theory of change. And you explained it, and when I tell you, my mind exploded. And I went back and I Googled whatever I could find. You know, when, and, and so so this is, this and, and every conversation, every teaching environment I'm in, anything I'm able to do, I'm always referencing two loops theory of change. This came directly from you to me. I'd never heard of it before you told me Explain the theory, and then let's kind of talk a little bit about this concept contextually. So what is a two-loops theory of change? Yeah, happy to. It's one of my favorite things to talk about these days. Um, Mm -hmm. And you did. You texted me, like, a whole string of texts. You're like, where do I find it? Where do I read? (laughs) Right, right. What do I read? Where are the books? Where are the articles? Tell me everything. Where's the books? Yeah. I don't know. And I was like, I don't know. I know experientially. Yeah. I know from the community, right? Yeah. This is something that that I learned from and with my organizer friends and facilitator friends who are working with communities in the midst of change. But 
It's the two loops theory of social change. Um, it's usually credited with, I think, the Burkana Institute. Yes. Um, is where I hear it. And really it's a way, it's, there's a visual model. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's kind of a metaphor, a way to map um, and pay attention to kind of the simultaneous living and dying processes yeah. that we're always a part of. So that are a part of any industry, um, any um, institution, any organization, often neighborhoods. And uh, this is controversial, but I would say faith, faith tradition. Absolutely. And how faith traditions, at least how faith traditions organize themselves, yeah. right? So um, it's a theory that recognizes that change is always happening, that they're always disruptors um, or outliers. Yep. Misfits, or mi- misfits, right? right. <laughs> always, always experiments. There are always yeah. experiments happening, always people who kind of fit cleanly in and are benefiting from and those who are not, right, mm-hmm. in any of these. And so a way um, to kind of recognize how these things are moving. So two loops um, illustrates that in any industry, um, say for credit higher education, which is mine, or mm-hmm. say like the gas powered automobile, mm-hmm. which we're definitely seeing a change. Like there's this moment where this uh, this industry becomes dominant. And this is kind of the, the first loop, right? It works itself up. It's becoming dominant, but then it starts to dip, mm-hmm. right? Underneath that, there's always been people who didn't benefit from that, wasn't on board with it, or or maybe got it launched, but they're the they're the entrepreneurs. They're mm-hmm. like, get things launched, and they're like, ooh, and they're on to the next thing, mm-hmm. right? So there's people like experimenting with other things and like, oh, or visionaries that see 100 years in the future and they're mm-hmm. like, this is not sustainable. So mm-hmm. what are the things we can start to learn now? So there's always these little bubbling experiments happening here. And these people sometimes find each other. So in the two loops model, it's talking about how the experiments and when those experimenters start to find each other, which I hear you talking a little bit Jeremy, and your own experiences with misfits right now, right? right? And they find each other and they begin to practice and share their learnings and might form other communities of practice and get bigger experiments together. And this starts to move up into another loop, right? So there's this moment where these two loops are like right here where people are making decisions. Yeah. For the previously dominant or successful uh, loop or industry or experiments. People are making decisions right here of, are we going to be the stabilizers as it moves down, as we're experiencing loss? Are we going to pour our life into stabilizing this institution or this industry or this organization or this faith tradition? Or are we going to help hospice it mm-hmm. and begin to funnel the resources into what we see moving up, mm-hmm. right? And there's also this kind of line in the visuals of sometimes it's called the bridge. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it's called like a wave or something. Sometimes it's like just recognizes the transition and it recognizes both in time. But I see as an educator, Mm -hmm. I think about that also just really physically. Um, So a place not just for time and resources to be refunded and reallocated, but I think of myself as an educator as right there with my students at that space, like to help point towards, can we point towards the bridge? What are yeah. the skills needed for the bridge? What are the questions needed for that bridge? How do we move that transition, right? So I 
um, in both organizing and educational space often feel both the possibilities and tension of like being a hospice worker yeah. for the dying systems um, and those who, you know, helping it have like a, um, a, a dignified death yeah. if possible, right? Um, while also funneling those resources over to help make room to give birth to the things that are emerging, right? So it's like hospice and, and midwife work at the same time when you live in that bridge piece. And sometimes like blocking out, I feel like I'm blocking out for my students and the new experiments to have a chance to actually grow and get over there and get running. But those are the two loops. Yeah. It's it's happening. If We've worked with communities where we just like – lay that out on the floor and say, where would you put yourself on this? Where do you see your church, your community, your organization in terms of just this kind of life cycle? Um, how do we recognize the, the realities that we're a part of through that as, as a, in some ways as a metaphor, yeah, um, but also as a little bit of a key, it could be a key, just a lens um, to try to name without shame, mm -hmm. the fact that things have cycles, life cycles. So do we feel like, can we feel less shame about a dying industry mm -hmm. and instead see the possibilities of how can that be compost to seed what might be useful for, for the folks coming behind us? Yeah. I mean, I think you're, you're spot on as it relates to just my energy around this misfit con concept um, in the context of this two loop theory, because what yeah. I have always felt before I even had language was I've always felt like I want to mobilize people. And then I've gotten a passion for mobilizing people that don't fit other places because those seem to be the people who were dreaming about the future, thinking about what could be, we're not necessarily, I was, I was talking with a friend, and he was talking about how he feels like the next generation, his, his son will probably create the next thing. He said, because I've been saddled with the rules and the rules yeah. sometimes can lock up my imagination. And so as I've kind of just looked at people and experienced, I'm like, yo, you're, you're on to something and, and they're on to something and so are you and you see it. What if we all got in the same room and developed this community of practice where we just allowed for the synergy that naturally occurs when you have people who are visionary and imaginative, right? Kind of, it just it almost like intuitively happens. What if we could mobilize? And what could it look like to then be uh, the engine or those who influence, articulate what's coming next? Because in the two loops theory, we, we look at things through the lens of, of it as an organism, right? And every mm -hmm. organism has a life cycle. So all the things that we kind of take it for granted, one day they're going to collapse. And when they yep. do, if there's not a population of imagining people who are dreaming about what's next, then, you know, that creates a little bit of a conundrum when it comes to civilization. So I think, you know, to your point, wanting to always be a connector to not only, you know, obviously I, I, I think because of my work as a pastor, you know, as my profession, having to transition a, a, a really uh, old church into the new world. I kind of had to do this whole bridge thing, but I found more joy 
and I find joy in that, but I've even found more joy in looking around the world and saying like this individual, that individual, like we need to be in the same room. We, you need to know so-and-so. We need, because those are the people that are gonna create what's next. And we can take this decomposition with dignity and help, and help fertilize what is now emerging for the future. So it's a really cool construct and concept. That's right. And Jeremy, I'm so grateful for you and what you're naming in terms of like your your passion, your commitment to be a connector. Because yeah. I think that's such a crucial piece of this. I think it's a crucial piece right now. Sure. Where we're living um, and crucial in those kinds of mo loop moments of like building that connective tissue. Yeah. Like making the, the connections among folks to see where, where are the sparks how yeah. does that multiply or mm -hmm. where can resources be creatively um, used in a way that multiply benefits or yes. even some decisions can be made because yeah. of that, because of the, the benefit of the, the more collective and collaborative learning and unlearning. Yeah, um, absolutely. Rather than the, what you mentioned right just early in the show, what you mentioned about like this, um, or maybe it was before, I can't remember, but <laughs> about like the individualist or like right. the, the rogue, right? Right, like right. That's, nope, that's nope. just not going to work for us. Nope. That's, nope. That, that rogue is like capitalism yeah. and white supremacy <laughs> and yeah. all of the things yeah. that we're unlearning, right? So the system itself is needs to be practiced in a way that just dissolves yeah. um, that as, as the, the, the hero make, making that instead of the kind of the anti- yeah, I mean, I, I love it. Misfits love community. You know, <laughs> misfits crave community. And I think it it fuels us, it energizes, it allows for us. Like, I think we like the ability to to sound off, to to have things bounce back to us. You know, we know that every idea is not going to be the greatest one. And you kind of need, yeah. you know, to be in spaces where you can kind of kind of do that. So in that same conversation, you blew my mind again because you were like, you know, Jeremy, like every 500 years, the world falls apart, you know, and humanity begins to look for the next answer. And I was like, and you started like calling it out. And you talked about um, uh, Martin Luther. And I mean, you start like yeah. calling out over the course of history that there is this cycle. And I was mm -hmm. like, well, I'd never considered that. Talk a little bit. Because I think you, and, and if I'm, and correct if I'm wrong, you feel like we're kind of in that space now with the collapsing of certain aspects of culture and this deep desire in humanity to like, what's next? But you, 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 you positioned it by showing how it's happened over the course of a few thousand years. So walk us through that and then talk about what you sense happening right now. Yeah. We've had some good conversations. Huh? The best. <laughs> I feel like we deserve a round of applause for our hey. conversation. Please help hey. me celebrate me and Cassie maybe, for our conversation. Maybe, <laughs> well, maybe just, maybe just, and I feel just like some extra bubbling gratitude for your relationship in my life and your presence <laughs> in my life that surfaces Absolutely. some of these pieces. Yeah. Um, yeah. This is, again, uh, one of the gifts of being a scholar organizer, sure. right? a scholar activist. So in studying particularly church history, and I was talking almost exclusively just looking at the lens of uh, Christianity sure, and the history of Christianity. Um, 
and studying church history and teaching church history uh, just, I think, gives me the benefit of just seeing these patterns. Mm -hmm. And what I think I was mentioning to you, and, and this is particularly the movement of like European Christianity and European ways that have given rise to much of, of what we're experiencing collapsing um, and some of the suffering um, that, that a lot of communities have experienced underneath these ways. And so just seeing the ways that those dissolve. Hmm. Um, so because I pointed it out, if we start, just take the last 2000 years, okay. the first 500 years, four or 500 years, we're dealing with Rome mm -hmm. and the Roman empire, but we know the Roman empire did not last forever. Yep. And so 400 years in, um, res responding to the fall of the Roman Empire and the creation of like what's going to be the new institutions that hold us together. Uh, we had some things that kind of stabilized, but now it feels like chaos and crisis. And we see the rise of like monasticism yeah. in the Western Christian Church as as a place to like bring order out of out of chaos um, and experiment with some things for a while, and then around one one thousand. Uh, so 500 years later is when we experience, especially like the split between the Eastern and Western branches of the church. We've mm -hmm. got the crusades. And so we're learning to live with significant difference, just mm -hmm. culturally, as well as religious orientations um, and kind of reorganizing ourselves around who are we going to be? Or are we going to be primarily the people that just pull out the swords? Mm -hmm. and Or are we going to be people who pull out a pen mm. um, when it comes to engaging folks with different ideas and ways of being in the world and people of faith in the world? And then about 500 years after that is the reformations, but also colonialism, Yeah. right? So we've got in the European continent the reformations and the challenge to authority and what becomes like the protestant movements and mm -hmm. the split between roman catholic church and and protestant denominations that ends up in like 2500 plus christian denominations now yeah. um but also at the same time colonialism yeah and so i think that has an even bigger impact of trying to figure out what does it mean to be church what it mean, does it mean to be christian what does it mean to be human in the world and we see it you know, there's always a really painful period. Yeah. And then some things start to organize and some new institutions and predominant ways take hold in various places and they rise and then they begin to collapse. Yeah. Right. And the reformations and colonialism started around 500 years ago. Yeah. So here we are in another 500 year. And if we look with those lenses, right, I, I'm not saying that that is like, <laughs> full-on truth, right, right? Because right. the people in those moments don't necessarily know. Yeah. Um, but what we know, the folks in those moments know that the things that held the generations together that were before them are no longer holding things together. Yeah. So whether that's values, whether that's institutions, and we also know that those values and institutions never worked for everyone. They weren't designed for everyone. Um, so it's, there's gains and losses in every collapse, right? And so what we know is, it's like, there was this cartoon I saw um, with my kids one time, <laughs> where this dog was on a train, and it got to the, like, riding a toy train around in, in this, like, wild chase scene. Mm -hmm. And it got to the end of the track, and picked up the box of track and it was just like laying down on track while the train mm -hmm. was going, right? And so it feels 
in those moments, it feels a little bit like that because you're in, you're in a space where the things that had got you here are not going to work anymore or they're collapsing or you might be actively trying to dissolve them um, or overthrow them. But the things that will then hold the next generations together don't exist yet. Yeah. So it's this, it's this bridge moment in the two loops or yeah. a transition moment or yeah. it's just an, uh, I call it the in-between. I think we live in an in-between. Hmm. Um, and that's, I think in the U.S. we live in an in-between. Got it. Um, and I don't know that that would be the same. I don't pretend to say that that would be the same globally, but in the yeah. same ways, I think, in some ways, I think because of just global implications and sure. planetary implications, there's also a real in-between um, moment that we live in that has different kinds of stakes. Yeah. Than some of the the previous ones, uh, it reminds me of the Detroit-based activist Grace Lee Boggs. Um, she used to ask the question of what time is it on the clock of the world, hmm. um, and and that reminds me of that question of what time is it on the clock of the world. I think we're in a moment of collapse. Yeah, we're in a moment where the things that have held the previous generations together, although never for all of us. Um, are are collapsing we're seeing it we, we will experience more of it um, which creates challenges it creates opportunities it creates choices yeah um, yeah and i mean there's there's other models too uh, margaret <laughs> wheatley talks about like every collapsing empire follows the same pattern like mm -hmm. just looking at uh global things that would like rue to empire kind of status mm -hmm. like and what are the what are the stages? And if we read that as a lens, it also spells to the same kinds of things. Like, yeah. oh, we can see that. So the question is not where are we all the time? The question is, okay, so who do we want to be? Yes. Or um, what's that world we're dreaming about? Um, and what are the skills and tools that we know we need, that we've used, that our ancestors have used, and or that we need to develop now for this moment that kind of bring us from, and this is the organizer work, the world as we experience it to that, that world that we, that we dream about and are beginning to imagine. So good. So uh, the obvious next question as, and this maybe as a counterbalance to what you just answered is then where, where do we see the bottom loop? Like where do you, where, and I'm talking about you specifically, when you look around the country, in whatever spaces you're engaging, where do you see the thinkers, the influencers, the doers, the people that excite you that are kind of percolating in this moment of shift that could be the ones who are helping to articulate or steward like where we're headed next? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really important question. Um, a lot of the folks that I see that I get excited about are just really, really localized. Yeah. So rather, like it's a move from globalized to the incredibly localized. Sure. Um, and please call to, those names too. I mean, we'd love to yeah. hear any names that, that are local to you that might be worth, yeah. you know what I'm saying, just knowing mm -hmm. and hearing. Yeah. And some of the theory, some of the folks that are offering theory would be folks like, well, not just theory. It's never just theory. Sure. 
So the folks that are are offering some reflections on the practice that mm-hmm. are more widely available would be like emergent strategy folks like mm-hmm. Adrian Marie Brown mm-hmm. and some of uh, her community. Um, Bio Akumalefe mm-hmm. is a person that I follow his thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and like Trisha Hersey from the NAP ministry. I'm mm-hmm. not sure if you're familiar mm-hmm. with her, but I see all of these folks as, uh, and a transnational community that I've been a part of for several years and just like spiritual and theological mutual accompaniment mm-hmm. where it's people from U.S. and Mexico, Peru. Um, that's how we started. Now we have some Brazil, we have some Spain, mostly Spanish speaking and mm-hmm. U.S. folks who are practicing what it looks like to reflect and hone our practices um, people at the intersections of kind of life and death, faith and justice hmm. um, in particular communities. But I see these folks, all of these folks as, as in some ways practicing kind of recovery. Um, this is a recovery. And I don't mean like grabbing things, but I mean personal recovery. Yeah. Like in recovery from systems, um, even while, so this is that middle moment, having to pay the bills. Yeah, right. Um, so in recovery from systems, even while still in them at times. So reclaiming embodiment, reclaiming locality and joy. Yeah. That's a huge piece and fierceness and playfulness. There's mm. like trickster sensibilities around yeah. it, which like just makes my heart go thump, thump. <laughs> yeah. My trickster self goes thump, thump. Yeah. So it's that in and out of systems and modeling what we talked about a little bit earlier, this the ways that the inness and the outness mm. um, kind of erode the system itself mm-hmm. and makes way for the new ways. Um, so I see these folks as doing what feels like soil work yeah. um, for the in-between times. So making those new ways possible. Um, yeah, I love it. I see I see it in the immigration justice community. I see it in the interfaith community in Portland, um, in my own local context. I see it in conversations with my students. Yeah. Like naming some of my students who are are scrapping and are dissatisfied. And I just want to like stoke some of that restlessness. um, But at the same time, like be kind of a home place landing place. Because I know that restlessness alone will eat you up. Yeah. Um, so it's both fuel and then also creating a little bit of that buffer place to come and rest. Um, dying industries will kill you. Yeah. If you let them. Yeah. Like we say to each other, don't die for a dying industry. Yeah. Don't die for a thing that's dying. And those things don't love you back. Yeah. So what does it look like to love each other um, and ourselves in, in a way? I love it. All right, here's our final final question. Yeah. Um and and this is the the misfit question I ask every single guest. And so I'm going to hit you with it. Um okay. so Sergey Brand has a uh, he has a quote. And the quote is uh and I you know, I'm saying my version of his quote. So the quote yeah. is uh unless what you're doing sounds to some like science fiction, it's not transformational enough. Hmm. So my question for you is um, what is that sci-fi thing, the thing that sounds silly until it happens? Like whether that's something that you are um, initiating or involved in or even something that you hear or see around you 
what is that crazy thing that, mm-hmm. like, when people hear it, they're like, okay, you're nuts. It's never going to happen. That's impossible. Um, and until it happens. I feel like I have a string of proposals that <laughs> I've been permitting that I always are told that I'm nuts. I love it. Um, the the sci-fi question, I already, I bristle at the sci-fi. You wait, say it because again? I bristle. I bristle <laughs> a little bit at the sci-fi. Okay. Um, not, not as a critique of the quote, but when I think, sometimes when I think about science fiction, it's like the images that come to mind that have been paid, that been kind of like painted for me are like shiny and mm-hmm. uh, electric mm-hmm, and technological. Mm-hmm. Sure. And um, man, when I think of the future, I'm thinking more of what we uh, sometimes associate with ruins. Mm. Um, so like uh, when like the green and the vines like yeah. start to overtake the things that we thought we could build up and would keep us safe or would, um, you know, make us powerful. Um, and so when I think of the future, it's like away from the overbuilt mm-hmm. and more towards the intuitive mm. um, where humans are like, what we've talked about a little bit in this in this last few minutes of, of nurturing your ability to our ability to work and move in tandem. Yeah. Um, where we can move like flocks. Yeah. Like Adrian Marie Brown talks about murmurations. Yes. And how birds like are mm-hmm. in touch with the seven around them. Mm-hmm. So my sci-fi is like humans actually get re-in touch with some of those abilities that we have and can move more in tandem and and a more intuitive, more instinctual work with the seven next to them are like so grounded in local community, mm-hmm. but the local community touches a community next to it, right? And touches the community next to it. So mm-hmm. how are these moving in ways that are are benefiting the whole? Um, and I think because I am so interested in bold ideas is why I spend a lot of my time right now in that um in that bridge. Yeah. Um, like I think I've had seasons and will have seasons where I'll be the experimenter. And right now I'm in a season where I'm being called to nurture the bridge. Yeah. Um, to, to translate, to, to get quick learnings, to translate kind of the crumbling of current systems in the soil, um, for the seeding, for the next thing um, that maybe I won't see yeah. the thing that replaces what's collapsing. Um, but like when I think about higher education, I'm always experimenting and drafting proposals that are more contextually and communally responsive models mm-hmm. um, away from credit based, away from tuition based. Mm. Um, so it's, just looks very different than what has held the folks and what like most are operating with right Mm -hmm. now. But we really, I think we're in a moment where education itself also has to um, adapt and find its next evolution um, away from kind of institutional in the same kinds of way. And more as like being the educational partners to the other good work. Yeah in cities or in regions or in neighborhoods, uh, which looks like death um, to some, right? And it looks like death at first. 
Um, but actually maybe is compost. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And the ability to kind of like lift up um, the, the hidden prayers and the deep longings and possibilities of the folks right there in that space and, um, and educate for the now and around the corner rather than as like a stable institution that is like a, a gatekeeper of a, of a different future. Um, that we've a little bit experienced. That sounds exciting. <laughs> That's an amazing world uh, for us to live in. It's almost the future really is going back, you know, because mm-hmm. so much has gotten us away from each other, gotten us away from ourselves, and that intuitive nature in which you talk about, it gets lost when the complexity of all of these new Additives, AI, technology, all things, wonderful things. I'm using an iPad right now. We're on Zoom right now. Like, I'm not trying to, like, be disingenuine. But Mm -hmm. if it's not counterbalanced by um, your capacity uh, to be present with yourself and present with the next person, there is something about the energy, the pheromones, all these things that that do matter, or unless God wouldn't have created them. Um, There's a power in that, and I almost feel like, you know, what you're advocating for is for in our pursuits us not to lose what's worth pursuing great things for. Because if we don't have each other, then what what does it all mean, right? Yeah, and what kind of ancestors do we want to be? Like yeah. what, like I, I often think about, like, you know, my kids' generation, my grandkids' generation, like, out there. Like, yeah. When we're looking, when, when the vision is long, what do they need? So here, I, I, I can't, I can't articulate all of that, but I can see a bit of the horizon. Yeah. Right. So what do they need from me to in or, now in order to kind of create the conditions so that those things might be possible um, for them? Cassie, you have been an absolutely phenomenal guest. Thank you so much for joining me today. This, this has been great. I can't thank you enough, buddy. Jeremy, I'm so grateful for you in my life. Absolutely. And so grateful that you're exploring the misfits in the world. Thank you so much for listening to the Misfit Manifesto. I trust this has been as you know impactful for you as it has been for me. Now, what makes these type of moments in this community special is when you're a part of it. So I want to encourage you to go to MisfitManifesto.com. Join the conversation and join the community. I believe something is on the horizon, but I don't want to do it alone. I want to do it with you. So come be a part. Let's see some amazing things happen.